Welcome into a new Buff Stampede Radio, a special edition, a basketball-only show, here with Jake Shapiro. Jake, you did a fantastic job as the beat writer for Buff Stampede this season. Uh, invaluable help. Really appreciate you for all the stuff you did this season and uh, for doing this podcast with me. Well, you don't see me blushing, but I am if you're at home. And uh, it's funny because the Buff Stampede board has had differing differing opinions of me over <laughs> the years. And uh, I think, Adam, you know this. I don't take compliments well, but I take criticism and uh, hatred very well. So I've been very appreciative of the Buff Stampede board over time. Well, the ironic thing there is the most heat you took was over a story after the 2016 season. I, I believe it was in July because I was on a boat when that story hit and the board was going crazy. Uh, but I actually, in the end, you gained some credibility by putting something out there and you stood behind it. And sure enough, 2017 happens and the, t- the program takes a step back. Yeah, man. Cry, pray, shower. Let's just dive right into this, Jake. The Buffs finished 23-13, and 13, tying for the third most wins in program history. They won 12 of their last 16 games. How much do you think what happened the last couple months righted what happened there with the holiday tournament and that rough was about a month stretch? Yeah, I don't think you can say completely or entirely because they didn't get into the tournament, but doing the calculations with Tyler Ziskin, our fan correspondent on Buff Stampede, if the Buffs had won that tournament in Hawaii, they probably still wouldn't have gone to the NCAA tournament because their strength of schedule was that weak, and that's how far off they were. But I would say that because of the ending of the season and the way they finished strong and the way they were able to turn things around, I have never been higher on Tad Boyle as a basketball coach than I am right now. And talking to sources around the program and former players and assistants on the staff currently is they thought this was an unbelievable coaching job with Tad Boyle. So it turns out that given how terrible this situation ended up being halfway through the season where you lose one of your leading scorers in Naaman Wright, your only senior, your team doesn't look like they want to play on most nights. There's no consistency, not only from game to game, but half to half. You just don't know what team you're going to get. And then Boyle turns that into a team that makes it to the Pac-12 tournament semifinal and wins two postseason games. That's a hell of a coaching job. And I think Tad Boyle deserves a lot of credit. Now, there are certain things we'll talk about with the players that I think are negatives and positives, but as the program moves forward, I think we've seen the fact that Boyle has struggled with some recruiting classes, and that's one of the reasons why they've struggled the last few years, is he completely missed on a few recruiting classes. Now we're seeing the two recruiting classes he absolutely nailed, Tyler Bay, McKinley Wright's class, Evan Batty concluded, and then going down one more year to this new group that we're, you know, the verdict's still out on, but, you know, we're seeing good signs from this class, and, you know, we haven't seen Jacob Dumbach yet, who people love in practice, so I think that given those two recruiting classes, the Buffs are in a great place moving forward, and Tad Boyle, his leadership, I really like the assistants around the staff right now, and they're going to have something next year so long as all the assistants stay and the Buffs didn't really have a good enough year where I think any of their assistants are going to get picked off, where they're going to have a really cohesive unit, not only in returning minutes, but returning staff. There's no question that Tad Boyle is a victim of his own success. And it's kind of interesting as I've watched this CU fan base on the football side, you've got a bigger group of people that pay attention to everything. With basketball, there's more of this fringe kind of fan base to where instead of when the team is struggling okay let's really dive into some of the topics why haven't they recruited better it's straight to 
fire Tad Boyle. And it's kind of unfortunate. I think we get a lot smarter discussion with the football program than we do with the basketball program at times. It's funny because at a certain point this year, I just stopped caring about what anyone thought about the basketball program, whether it was people in the basketball program or people on our board, because I was just like, you know what? There are about four people in the universe outside the program that actually care more about this than me. So what's the point of trying to cater to anyone that cares less about it? So I got to that point at this at this season just because it was so frustrating because there are so many external factors that we've gone over time and time yeah. again with this program. But I think the biggest key in terms of, okay, this is Tad Boyle being a victim of his own success. Ten years ago when Tad Boyle made his first NIT, all those games were sold out. This year, nobody cared. What can change to kind of bring back that excitement? Is, is it impossible? I think the biggest thing, and Tad Boyle has said this, is the football program has to improve and make CU more of an athletic department known for its sports. CU's not known as a sports school anymore. I mean, you talk to any of the guys that are being recruited and you talk to them every single mm-hmm. day. There's no history with CU athletics for the kids my age or younger, really. Yeah, uh, five years younger than me now, but it's it's wild to think that. Given, I mean, I grew up in Boulder. I know all of these stories and the history, and of course Rashawn Salam and all stuff like that. But it's it's you need to establish yourself as an athletic department and build yourself down from there. And I think it starts with the football program and, of course, the money that they would bring in if they were to re- return to sustained success. And then you can start investing back in basketball. Uh, but yeah, t- uh, there needs to be a lot of things that change in order to actually cultivate a program in Tad Boyles that can go to the tournament every year without cheating. And there are very few programs around the country that I think are doing that, And I, if we're honestly speaking. Two wins out in Las Vegas, two wins in the NIT. How much does that boost this program going into the offseason? Huge. It gave them momentum moving forward. And I thought the biggest thing going into this season before it started was you probably have to make the NCAA tournament because you need to build some momentum and get some postseason experience for next year. They didn't get to the NCAA tournament, but they figured out a way to build some momentum and go in a positive direction and get some experience for next year. You know, game over game, you could see different little signs, whether it was the way the Buffs finished out a four-minute segment before a TV timeout or, you know, how they came out after a whistle and their after timeout plays. They got so much better, just some of the small things. And I think the small things are the big things in sports. And I think it says a lot. And It goes towards McKinley Wright's leadership. Of course, he didn't show up on some nights, including the last home NIT game, and he admitted that. But when McKinley Wright did have the energy and showed up, the team looked completely different. And then Tyler Bay came on and looked completely different. But the NIT, I think, was not only huge for player development, like like the Deshaun Schwartz game that he had, where you're all of a sudden seeing flashes of what Deshaun Schwartz could be, but an overall mentality of playing in postseason basketball because you had some high-level games. That Dayton game was a high-level basketball game, and the Buffs figured out a way to win it. It was the hardest home game they had all year um, in terms of, I think, just play. It was it was the best played on both sides home game of the year. I mean, no one else looked that good in Boulder. Dayton was the best team, or the best-looking team in Boulder all year. And then you look at what they did in Vegas – Washington is was a problem for the Buffs this year. I mean, senior leadership, the zone defense, they were not going to beat that team under any circumstances. But you look at the games before them and how they rallied in those games and how they came together as a unit, 
and how McKinley Wright uh, stepped up at big moments. And I'll point to one thing. Late in the season, instead of pulling up for three late in shot clocks, McKinley Wright, with about two seconds on the shot clock, would do his crossover step up to the three-point line. And instead of looking to shoot immediately, he looked everyone off because the scouting report was, okay, come double this guy late in the shot clock because we know he's shooting. Throw it into the corner, Gatling or Schwartz would hit a corner three. And that is the sign of this team improving, the sign of its team, this team knowing its strengths and weaknesses, and McKinley Wright trusting his teammates, which was something I don't know that he completely did early on in the season before his shoulder injury, and he was forced to trust his teammates. Texas had an extra day. They didn't have to travel. They had home court. How much of that last performance was just see you kind of running out of gas? They obviously couldn't get the ball to, to fall in on, on that night. It was a matter of time, and I talked to Nate Tomlinson before the Pac-12 tournament, and he said, very honestly speaking, he goes, yeah, we could go four and four, and then he kind of mentions to me, he's like, obviously we only have like an eight-man rotation, so I don't know how long we're going to have the legs, but we feel really good about the way we're playing, and the way I felt was, okay, the Buffs could win the whole NIT, but at some point they're probably going to run out of gas, hopefully that's after the tournament, but it just hit them like a wall as soon as they traveled, which is not surprising. They yeah. traveled, they had a quick turnaround, but they were running an eight-man rotation. Obviously, Parquet came back, so they had a nine-man rotation just for that game, essentially. But McKinley Wright was playing 35, 37 minutes a night. Tyler Bay was playing 35 minutes a night. These guys have never played that much in that short of a time span, so it caught up to them. And again, this is a thing that goes into experience and how valuable this experience was. Because when you look at it, instead of going into next year, let's say the NIT and Pac-12 tournament didn't happen, you'd be going, well, their only time playing in quick succession over a couple days on the road was Hawaii, and that was an absolute disaster. Now we can point towards something that was actually a a little bit of a success and they can build some momentum off of. So I think it's a huge bright spot because it erases a lot of the negativity that they had from the non-conference schedule, and still they got you know, a little bit of uh, sour taste in their mouth from both Washington and Texas, which I think is important because this team actually cares. Like you saw it this year in the NIT. Two years ago when they were in the NIT with Derek White, nobody wanted to play in that game but Derek White. Like I can tell you that for real. Like I was out in Vegas with a couple of the guys a couple nights before they went to the NIT. None of them thought their season was going on. They were like, they thought they were done. And then all of a sudden they're in the NIT and you can't just flip that switch from done to back on. I mean, we saw the 1972 Olympic basketball team. You you know how that goes. But it's one of those things uh, for the Buffs is that tournament shows a lot about where your program is going because it shows whether or not the guys are bought in, whether or not they actually care about the program's mission more so than they care about going dancing in March. And the NIT this year showed that the Buffs care about Tad Boyle's message. He didn't lose the locker room. He's They're listening to his message, and they're completely bought in because they did all of the things Tad Boyle asked them to in essentially consolation games. I think one way to really recap this season is just go player by player. And, Jake, I'm going to ask for you to give a grade. Are you going to be grading on a curve here, or, or these? do you have kind of a, a thought process in terms of how you came to these? Some of the guys I graded based on some expectations and okay. then went down on. And, then, and I'll, I'll note which ones. And some of the guys I just basically said, uh, like, you know, you're a freshman. I don't know what your expectation was. So here's a grade because 
you know, like this <laughs> is how valuable, <laughs> right? This is how value valuable you were. So it, it kind of changed, but uh, grades are meaningless. That's what I was telling people all my life as I walked into CU with a two seven. So <laughs> and then finished CU with a two seven. So none of that really mattered. Well, I think the guy you got to start with here is Tyler Bay, the most improved player on this basketball team. Recorded 17 double-doubles on the season, finished as a Pac-12 season leader in that category. Had a 356 rebounds, second most in team history. Only Andre Robertson, who had 401 during the 2011-12 season, had more. Also finished as the team's leading scorer at 13.6 points per game and with 44 blocks. He gets a Bay plus from me. <laughs> That's an A-plus if you didn't catch the pun. But uh, Tyler Bay, I think, was terrific. And uh, I might as well say this. I, I, we, he needs to come back. Like, I really hope that he comes back. Uh, but he has the right to go test who wants him in the draft. And he should. He should go find out where he is, where he needs to go work on his game. And I think a lot of the people, whether it's uh, his teammates or the coaching staff, expects Tyler Bay to go and kind of test the waters just to see where he is. I mean, George King did this a few years ago, and there was no actual momentum behind George King being uh, drafted after his fourth year. He was coming back for his fifth year, and I think that's the expectation with Tyler Bay is that he's probably going to come back no matter whether you hear whatever in the news the next few weeks. And I think Tyler wants to come back too. Um, But the one thing that translates over to the NBA level is rebounding. And Tyler Bay was second best in defensive rebounding rate in the country this year. And another good sign of Tyler Bay's hopefulness as an NBA player is the best way to tell a shooter at the NBA level is free throw shooting. And Tyler Bay's a really good free throw shooter. So uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a team fell in love with Tyler Bay, but I, I would probably expect that to be next year. I mean, this is a guy that's going to be a top 10 pick, uh, top 25 pick, top 20 pick, uh, after this next season even as a junior which says a lot because that's how his body is built his defense is astoundingly good his offense is so much better than Andre Roberson's offense when he was here and he is so close to adding that three-point shot he just needs to tweak his jumper a little bit and then all of a sudden he's shooting from three but he is essentially a devastating threat from anywhere inside of 15 right now and the way he finished the season he was just as good of a scorer as Josh Scott and he was just as good of a defender as Andre Roberson. Truly, his numbers, his double-doubles, Andre nor Josh put up those numbers over the last, uh, a 15-game stretch at any point in their careers, and Josh played until his senior year, that, Andre, uh, that, uh, that Tyler Bay put up in the last 15 games. So that says a lot about where Tyler Bay is. And granted, his competition was a lot weaker because the Pac-12 was garbage this year, but... I, I still think it says a lot, especially because a lot of teams are playing zones and Tyler Bay found a way to adapt within his own offense. And he was not necessarily a player built to play zone because, you know, when we started the year, all he was doing was sitting on the block and dunking. And now he's got some post moves. Now he's figuring out how to drive baseline and reverse finish. How much of his slump early out in the Pac-12 tournament had to do with the fact of now he's a focal point of other teams, and they're attacking him differently. How big of a challenge is that for him this offseason going into next year, assuming he comes back? I think he had the same problem in the Pac-12 tournament that McKinley Wright had early on in this season, which is just Tyler Bay tried too hard to be the important player on the buffs, and he needed to just let his game come to him. And I think part of that was Tyler Bay's from Vegas, and he wanted to show out in front of all his family, family and friends. Something that we'll never understand as media members, as fans, is the mentality and the 
uh, emotions of athletes, no matter how hard we try or no matter how much we put our credence into it or no matter how well I know Tyler. It's just there's no way we can understand what goes on there. And I think that actually had a pretty solid uh, uh, effect on him. And eventually when McKinley was struggling, Tyler stepped up against Washington. And that was part of Tyler, you know, I don't think overthinking it. It was just, okay, I'm going to let my game come to me, do the things that were natural. So that right there is a learning experience in the postseason for Tyler Bay. And that's why the Pac-12 tournament was invaluable to these guys is Tyler not only figured out how to play when teams were really focusing in on him, but figured out how to play when his team is falling apart all around him and he is being relied upon while being the focus point. And still, he's just playing within himself. So I think that Washington game was a huge sign for Tyler Bay's development. And uh, I, can, I think you can write off the first two games in, in Vegas for him. How much better do you expect him to get this offseason? You mentioned the three-point shot being close there. He's going to have a lot of expectations on him next year. Well, one of the things I think they're going to work on with Tyler is he's not going to be the center anymore next year. He was playing center this year. He's going to be a power forward. And I think at times you might even see him playing a wing position next year because they're, when you have a 40-minute basketball game in college hoops and you have four big men that are legit, Dallas Walton, Tyler Bay, Lucas Seward, and Evan Batty, you have to figure out a way to get them all more than 20 minutes apiece. So there's going to be times when all three of them are playing. So Tyler Bay is needed to develop a three-point shot because if he's not out there with Lucas Seward, someone's got to shoot threes from the corner in the Buffs offense as the three spot. And, I mean, Lucas Seward could be running the three, but, you know, granted. But I, I think the the other part of this is Tyler Bay is going to have to be a better perimeter defender. Uh, and I'm not saying he's not a good perimeter defender. I think we just haven't seen it in a year. And we need to see Tyler Bay back out on the perimeter and see what that looks like. And I think that is going to be a really important part of what NBA scouts are looking for because of everyone's switchability at the next level. And that's one of the reasons why DeAndre Ayton actually went number one last year is because he was such a good perimeter defender as a seven foot one guy. He was switchable. Tyler Bay could become that guy. I don't know that he could guard one through five at the NBA level. He could probably guard one through four, but that is going to be something that people are looking for. And that's something I'm looking for. So basically, how can Tyler turn into more of a power forward than a center? Because he proved he can play center at the college level. But like a lot of guys, he's going to be playing smaller positions. And the Buffs are truly blessed with size next year, which is something so weird to say about a Colorado athletic department (laughs) team. Of the things that I've had a strong opinion about in 15 and a half years in this gig, being really outspoken against Andre Robertson leaving early is one of the opinions I've had that really turned out to be horrible. Had no business leaving CU when he did, and he was a first-round pick, and he's had a great career in the NBA. So I'm almost apprehensive to share my opinion on a Tyler Bay testing the waters, but it sure seems like he needs another year. I agree, but I was around a lot of NBA people last night at the Nuggets game, and I asked them questions all the time about guys like that. And again, rebounding and free throw shooting translate. And Robertson's got both, and certainly scouts have seen him. Boulder's one of the easiest places to scout because it's so close to Denver, so people send people up to Boulder all the time. A lot of people have already seen uh, Tyler Bay, and if he got into a combine situation, his numbers athleticism-wise for his size are going to be off the charts. So, uh, and you saw a lot of the athletic finishes towards the end of the Mm -hmm. year. You've seen the athletic blocks. 
I mean, this guy has the potential to be a really, really good defensive guy. But look at Matisse Thibel at Washington. If he's able to develop that three-point shot to a serviceable level from the corner, and he's counted on to be a modern-day post-forward uh, post where you can have basically everything in from the free-throw line extended as an option from him on offense, and he can guard everything on the defensive end, that guy is way more valuable. But again, sophomore to junior year, you're going to take a diminished step. You, you should come out after your sophomore year, most guys. But most guys, uh, it, it, you can't just judge things based on most guys. Uh, I mean, we've seen Derek White. We've seen George King's success, uh, have success going where they did in the draft. So uh, I, I would stay if I were Tyler Bay. Uh, and in conversations I've had with him and his teammates, their biggest goals are not going to the NBA when you ask them what your biggest goals are. Like if you ask them seriously, honest, honestly, off the record, drunk at a party, like they're not going to tell you uh, my number one goal is to be an NBA basketball player. They're like, of course I want to be an NBA player. I want to be a professional basketball player. But right now I want to get the buffs to a sweet 16. And it's awesome to see that not only everyone in terms of former players, staff members, Tad Boyle, but literally everyone in that athletic department's goal is for the Buffs to make a Sweet 16. And Tyler Bay is going to be the difference of whether or not the Buffs have a chance to do that next year. Would you be shocked or just surprised if he left early? Uh, I would not be surprised at all. Okay. If you had to put a percentage on it, probably tough to do until he actually does test those waters. I would say there's an 80% to 90% chance that he's back. Okay. That's probably what Colorado fans want to hear at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's I've all but put it in pen. I, it's in pencil that he's in my starting lineup for next year. But I would say there's a better chance that a guy like Delion Brown is not back next year than Tyler Bay. And and we'll talk to, about Delion. That's not a shot on Delion. We'll we'll get back to Delion in a second because I do have some thoughts on that. All right, let's move up next to McKinley Wright playing with a bad shoulder, finished with 167 assists, tying Mike Reed for sixth on CU's single-season list, finished second in scoring at 13 points a game. Also did turn the ball over 108 times, 37 more than any other buff. Obviously, he's going to turn the ball over than any other buff, handling the ball he does the way he does. Did you grade on a curve with, with the shoulder issue that he had this season? I gave McKinley Wright a B-. minus. Um and I think McKinley Wright would tell you that he didn't have his best year. And you have to remember more so than just the last few games. You have to go back to when the season started and he was healthy. I look at McKinley Wright like a great painter this year. Uh, sometimes great painters have problems when you give them, you know, say, do anything. You know, literally, you can have a canvas size of your choosing. You can paint with whatever materials you want, any colors. They'll struggle. Okay, now say... You have to do neoclassicism on an 18-foot canvas in XYZ. McKinley Wright was that way because all of a sudden he couldn't really shoot. And every time he did shoot, it was one of the most painful things he could ever do. So he got better because they took some tools away from him. And I think that helped him because he realized, okay, I can be an effective player while just doing this at the college level. Okay, now next year I can add back my shot and have that be a consistent shot. So it's really troubling because the number one thing I needed to see from McKinley Wright this year was a three-point shot, was a consistent three-point shot. And that's something he worked on so far all, all along offseason. The first half of the year he was 
terrible. In in the preseason, I went to enough practices where it looked like he was going to make a big jump there. Right, and and it just didn't show up in the games. So maybe that's a small sample size because 10 games really isn't that much. And then you had him have the shoulder injury, and you can't really judge his three-point shooting after that. I mean, he had a shoulder injury, and, and again, I keep stressing this to people. If he was a baseball player, he is out for 18 months with that shoulder injury. That is a serious, serious shoulder injury. He not only played through but succeeded through. So uh, far away from the shooting, his leadership was immensely successful for this year. And he's going to be a guy that I think is going to stay all four years at this point in his career, which is a good news uh, bit for the Buffs because he's going to shatter a lot of records in CU's book. And it's not like a ski book or shattering records. It's McKinley Wright understands the records he's shattering. I mean, what kid at University of Colorado has a George Washington High School Chauncey Billups jersey? What kid is dapping up Carlin Brown on the sidelines knowing exactly what that means to Buffs fans? McKinley Wright is awesome. And yes, his play needs to get better. His play needs to get better. But in terms of a leader for the team, you could not be more happy with this guy representing the program. I mean, we'll talk about Evan Batty too, but I mean, between Evan Batty and McKinley Wright, the only athlete that's even in their stratosphere in my time here at CU is Spencer Dinwiddie in terms of how much they care about this athletic pro- program and how much it's true. And again, this counts Phil Lindsay. People are at home saying Phil Lindsay. Yeah, you know what? Phil Lindsay was all Colorado, all that, all the time, and he's still wearing CU stuff. Spencer Dinwiddie was at another level. Uh, McKinley Wright is getting to that level. He's between Spencer and Phil right now. And Evan Batty's already at that level. I'm telling you, Phil Lindsay, I'm not calling him fake because it's not fake, but there's a certain ounce of realness that McKinley Wright has in it where you feel it bleed from him. Phil, I never felt that way about. And again, that's my perception of it. But going back to his play, he needs to improve his passing. I mean, he said it early on in the season, I can't have a game where I've turned it over five times. He did five turnover games like eight times this year and it was pathetic but it's really hard to judge it too because he's playing zone defenses every night so there's going to be more turnovers but they're trading you know the defense is essentially trading more turnovers for allowing more offensive rebounds so it's hard to judge the numbers because some of them are inflated but uh his transition ability is really great uh it gives CU another dimension he's one of the best transition guards in the country Uh, I think overall in terms of guards in the country I think he already is one of the best point guards in the country going into next year. We're going to need to see him after the repaired shoulder, but I would still judge him as prob- the number one guard, uh, point guard in the Pac-12. I don't think it's a question. I know people have gotten that argument with me, but you talk around the league, you ask people around the league, and his defensive ability, which we haven't, haven't covered, which we haven't even touched on yet, every single guy that's come to play the Buffaloes the last two years at the point guard position has looked like a shell of themselves playing against McKinley Wright. The only guy that's looked even serviceable towards towards his normal numbers is Remy Martin, and it's taking him five or ten more shots to get there. So McKinley Wright does such a good job defensively to the point where, in conversations I've had with people, Tyler Bay is probably the best candidate to win Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year next year just because the counting stats are going to be there as a big man, the blocks and the steals. But McKinley Wright might actually be the best defender on the Buffaloes. Going back to the shoulder injury, did you ever get a sense for exactly how much pain he was playing through this season? Anytime he extended it, 
going out to pick up a loose ball or something like that, he would grimace and try to come off the floor. So it was immense. Uh, he never gave me a pain scale one to ten, but uh, I can tell you, uh, anytime he raised his sho- his arm above his shoulder, his collarbone, he started feeling searing pain. So anytime he shot a basketball, it was not fun for him. Anytime he threw a pass, it was not fun for him. Anytime he dove for a ball, it was really hurtful. So he played through more pain uh, than your average hockey player does in the postseason. Like, it was a lot of pain that he was playing through. Obviously, going in for surgery now, does that temper some of your expectations for the amount of improvement he can show this offseason going into next year, given that he's going to be on the mend? It has to. But there's also some hopefulness, I think, there as well. This is an arm injury. He can work out his legs. He can stay well-conditioned, which only means so much in the offseason. But he can also regain his strength in his upper body and then rebuild his shooting stroke from there. So there is a chance that because of the shoulder injury, he has to go back to square run one from a shooting motion. Obviously, that might be horrible. That might end up being just ruining his shot completely. But I've seen it time and time again with baseball, especially in high-level athletics. And University of Colorado certainly has the resources to do this. When a guy has Tommy John surgery at the highest level of athletics in Major League Baseball and they have millions of dollars to spend, oftentimes their throwing motion gets a lot better and they're throwing about two miles an hour faster on their fastball because of the strength they added back in the recovery and them being able to build their shoulder from the inside out, elbow in the Tommy John case, and then them doing the perfect thing biomechanically. So I wouldn't be surprised to see McKinley Wright somehow be shooting better as a three-point shooter because of his recovery from the shoulder injury. But this is going to be a long process, and it's not going to be an easy one for McKinley. So I have zero expectations for him to actually get better this offseason, which is a shame. And that's why I say he's going to play all four years here in Colorado when I think initially he thought he was going to come out after his junior year. All right, let's move along to Shane Gatling. Struggled with this shot early on in the season, but ended up making a team-high 59 three-pointers and finished third on the team in scoring as a JUCO transfer. Just was him getting used to this level, right? I think you couldn't have expected a whole lot more out of him early in the season. That's a big jump. Yeah, he was going to be very inconsistent for the first half of the season no matter what because he's a JUCO guy. You see it time and time again in football. It's the same thing in basketball. I give Shane a B. I I was hesitant to give him a B minus B, but it's tempered expectations. And especially after McKinley went down with the shoulder injury and especially in the last 10 games or 15 games, Shane Gatling did a really good job of running point guard when McKinley Wright either wanted to play off ball or was out of the game and they didn't have Eli Parquet. So I give Shane Gatling, like, I I was really happy with the way Shane Gatling was playing point guard. Like, it's not easy to run point guard in Tad Boyle's system because it's very non-complex, so there's not often open looks. You kind of have to create a lot, and Shane Gatling did a really good job of that. And unlike the shooters of the past, Josh Fortune, I mean, that was really the only one of recent time, I guess, uh, Gatling has the ability to drive to the rim, too. And I think that adds a different dimension to Tad Boyle's uh, game plan. And again, this is speaking to Tad Boyle's improvement. Instead of just getting a shooter, he got a shooter that can do more than just shoot. And Shane Gatling, 
uh, had some struggles on defense at times this year. And whenever Tad Boyle said, we have guys putting their heads down after they miss shots and blah, blah, blah. That was about Shane Gatling and Lucas Seward. Shane got a lot better at that over the course of the year. And that's a sign of his improvement. And that's a sign of Tad Boyle sticking with his player. But uh, Gatling's ability to do more than just shoot is going to open up Colorado's offense. And I think it's going to be very hard to play zone against them for several different reasons. And Gatling's going to be one of those guys. This is a really good three-point shooting team. That shot terribly from three-point range. They were the 11th team of 12 in the Pac-12. Um, so just based on that, and look at the Buffs' point differential this year, which was actually plus six across conference games, the Buffs could have a crazy year in the Pac-12 next year in terms of just, all right, they might beat teams consistently by nine, 10 points because of just they're hitting one to two more threes a game, and all these guys are a year older. So when you look towards next year and you'll get to this, <laughs> Yeah, um, it's. I mean, I did the Tad Boyle. Yeah, you know, like the the little Tad Boyle noise there. It's interesting. They've had some guys that are lights out shooters in practice. That it doesn't translate to the games. Dustin Thomas is one that comes to mind. That dude would ball out in practice, and then he would get on the court and just start fouling everybody. Couldn't hit a shot. Levi Knutson, people forget because he had such a great senior season. He didn't really shoot that well early in his career at CU. No. Um, so Austin Dufault was a good three-point shooter, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's move along to Deshaun Schwartz. His 31% shooting from three-point range was a disappointment, but definitely had a lot of good moments during the season, finished at 9.2 points per game. Maybe a little bit more of a polarizing player within the CU fan base. Yeah, I gave him a B plus. He He got the second highest grade out of anyone on the team. I think he was unbelievably good this year uh his shot just didn't go down and it started to go down later in the season especially from the corners but this is a guy that can slash shoot score from all three levels uh his defense improved vastly over the course of the year this was the guy that took the second biggest jump from uh, the first was tyler bay from last uh from last year to this year and truly he was probably the third best player on the team behind mckinley wright and tyler bay uh schwartz stuck with a lot of the things he was doing he was a guy that didn't really put his head down was able to play through some of his shooting struggles and I think that's one of the reasons why I was so high on him he continued to play correctly he continued to do his things defensively hit the boards play with effort play with energy and make the correct cuts in his own offense and space the floor correctly even when his shot wasn't going down and then his shots started to go down very late in the season, very, very late in the season. And it looked like the Buffs had their best small forward of the Tad Boyle era. Just for a couple games, but it, Deshaun Schwartz, that's the guy that's going to be the X factor for next year. How high do you think his ceiling is? Or late season Deshaun Schwartz, is that kind of what your hopes are for him and not above that? If he can consistently be the guy he was the last five to six games of the year where he's getting 12 to 15 points a game, you know, three rebounds, three assists, moving the ball, shooting about 35 to 37% from three-point range and, you know, maybe laying down one dunk, getting to the free throw line a couple times a game, that is a second-round NBA player right there. I mean, we look at George King. George King was doing exactly that. And Deshaun Schwartz is a little bit bigger than George King. Uh, he, you know, in terms of height, not in width yet, he needs to put on a few pounds, but 
uh, it's weird because I, uh, in, in terms of this season, people were talking about Lucas Seward as a potential NBA guy earlier in the year just because of the way he was shooting as a six foot eleven player. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Tyler Bay and McKinley Wright are in that conversation, but I think Deshaun Schwartz is someone that gets overlooked. And I know scouts love a six foot seven lefty from the wing. Like that is something that scouts could easily find a way to fall in love with. And Deshaun Schwartz, the things he needs to work on are handling the ball, being more consistent in his shot. And just overall defense, like he needs to just be a better interior defender a little bit. Uh, His perimeter defense can improve just a bit. But his touch around the rim is very, very good for being a sophomore in college. His shooting stroke is pretty sound. So Deshaun Schwartz is a good basketball player, but there are certain finesse things that he could work on that would explode his game really, really quickly. We just talked about a couple guys that improved as the season went along. This player went the other direction, Lucas Seward. There was early on looked like the team's most improved player and somehow forgot how to shoot the basketball. Uh, made just 38% of his field goal attempts and just 30% from three-point range during conference play. I'm anxious to get your grade on this one, Jay. Uh, Lucas Seward got a C for me because I think that worked but uh, C- minus is really <laughs> where I'll give him but uh, you know I think you have to remember the early part of the season and that's one of the reasons why I gave McKinley Wright a lower grade. Lucas Seward got a higher grade because that he was really good early on in the season and he looked like a completely different guy and then at the end of the season he looked like a different guy than that different guy. He was so passive and so non-confident in his shot that it carried over into every aspect of his game later on. In the last five games or so when the buffs were really buzzing, Lucas Seward was still being productive. He was moving the ball around. He was getting a couple boards. He was doing some things that were finally productive. He was shooting open shots, which is fine when you're 6'11 and you can shoot like that. He just wasn't hitting them, and he wasn't putting his head down. That was a nice sign to finally see, but it took him 30 games to get there. Well, more like 20 in the middle of his first 10 good games and then at the end. But still, his defense at times was atrocious. He was the worst defender on the team uh, throughout the course of the season for the full season. Uh, His effort defensively in terms of just going after the rebounds was not good enough. He did not do his assignments in terms of offense well enough. And it all stemmed from this guy's a shooter, his shot wasn't going down, and he didn't stick with playing throughout the rest of the game like Deshaun Schwartz did, the exact opposite of what Deshaun Schwartz did. I still think Lucas Seward could be a very valuable big man for the Buffs going forward. He's one of the four guys I named in terms of a uh, a very good big man. He needs to shoot at 34. 7, 38, 39%. This guy needs, if I were to say who needs to be the best shooter on the buffs next year between Shane Gatling and Lucas Seward, it needs to be Lucas Seward. Lucas Seward needs to be the guy that's able to stretch the floor, not only because it's going to help him so much because he clearly needs to be able to shoot for the rest of his game to flow. That's just how he works, I guess, uh, his psychology. But he is a guy that could be playing the three a little bit next year in that big lineup that I talked about, which I haven't even seen in practice or any, we've seen it for very, very brief moments over the course of the year. And and the buffs didn't really want to run it much because, you know, they didn't want to get to straighting and undo Jacob Dombeck's red shirt. So they didn't, they, they have the option to do that a lot more next year than they will this past year. The final chapter in Lucas Seward's book here as a buff has yet to be written. Is this going to be a good ending, or is this the guy that on senior night the fans are going, gosh, I'm kind of glad that we're moving on here? What, what do you think? 
I really like Lucas, and I hope it's not that way because I, as a person, I really like Lucas. Uh, he's a really good, interesting guy uh, that has a lot of worldly experiences and stuff like that. And one of the things I think gets overlooked is him and Delian Brown are best friends. And he started struggling as soon as Delian Brown was announced he wasn't going to play again this year. And I think that started kind of a downhill movement of his mentality uh, going forward. So I think if Delian Brown stays, which, again, we'll get to, uh, Lucas Seward will be better just based on that, of just like having the confidence of his best friend around and happy and, and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I could totally see him having the name and right uh, Josh Fortune ending to his career. But I could also see him being a guy like Levi Knudsen or Austin Default, who has an unbelievable senior year just in terms of a role player contributing and he's a guy that would succeed very very well overseas because they don't have many six foot eleven guys let alone six foot eleven guys that can shoot over in europe or japan all right let's move along to evan batty whose story is just too good i mean can't play his senior year in high school due to some bs stuff that happened when he was in middle school when his parents split up then he can't play last year has a stroke comes back and the guy still has the best smile in Boulder. It's pretty unbelievable. Shot 48% for the season, 8.1 points, 4.4 rebounds. What, what do you give him in terms of a grade? He gets a B plus, uh, which is, again, the second highest grade. It's Tyler Bay, then Deshaun Schwartz, and Batty tied. I don't know what you could have expected out of Evan Batty this year. I mean, I, I saw him before the stroke. I saw him after in practice. Uh, he was good both times. Like, I really loved him in practice all the time. And clearly, he needed to lose some weight and, you know, get more efficient with his steps and stuff like that. And it was really hard to figure out whether or not he was going to be good once you got into a game because he's such a unique player, as mm-hmm. we've seen. We still haven't even seen his best ability, which is his passing ability. It's very rarely shown. Uh, We've seen it a couple times on cuts when he's in in the short corner on the high post. But the Buffs are going to have to redesign their offense, their uh, Evan Batty senior year, just based on the fact that Evan Batty can literally just sit in the high post and all four guys could run in circles and Batty's going to find someone open. Like that's how good of a passer Evan Batty is. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I love Evan Batty. He is, I think he's already, I mean, it's Spencer Dinwiddie, it's Evan Batty, and then it's McKinley Wright. Those are my three favorite athletes I've covered at CU. Evan is awesome. Uh, and it's not fake at all. No. And like, I know a lot of his friends and, uh, you talk about someone that is completely genuine and, and, and wholehearted, his only faults as a person, like, and I'm getting really deep into the Evan Batty is that he's 19 years old and sometimes he just doesn't know who he wants to be yet. You know what I mean? Like, and that's completely fine because he's 19 years old, but you know what he does know? He knows he loves CU. He knows he really wants to put everything he has into the program and he loves his coach. He loves his family. Everyone loves him. He makes every, not only does he have a smile on his face that's so big, but he makes everyone else smile. This is a guy when we talk about leadership at the college level, which I think is just completely BS, quite honestly. I don't think leadership's that important. But this is a guy that is someone to look up to and someone that carries, uh, you know, whatever the line is, walk lightly and carry a big stiff, or speak softly and carry a big stick. This is that guy. And he doesn't only speak softly metaphorically, but he also he also speaks kind of loudly because his his words are so meaningful because he does speak softly. This is a very similar guy to Josh Scott in terms of the way they're made up. And sometimes maybe because they're so emotional, 
and they care so much, it's going to come across as soft. And we haven't seen that uh, nasty part of the fan base come out yet uh, because of, you know, I think Evan's story has been so good and the only, you know, you can't really say something negative about a guy who had a stroke and and has come back from it. But I think at some point we might see some of that part of the, uh, of the fan base. And it's just going to be confusion as to what Evan is actually trying to say. So uh, his personality and getting that to Boulder was one of the best thing Tad Boyle has ever done because this guy is going to be a representative of this program for years to come. And whether or not he plays professionally uh, in the NBA or overseas, which it probably will, he's going to come back and be an assistant or something like that like Nate Tomlinson because he's going to be so important to the program moving forward. And as a player, uh, he got so much better as the season went along, and that's just being a freshman. Like, we didn't even see, like, crazy strides outside of just normal freshman development, right, which is just, all right, I'm learning how to play at this level. Like, early on in the season, he would go up for a shot – because he's six foot seven, 250 pounds. And he'd go, oh, this is in at the high school level. It was swatted. He needed to finish, uh, figure out how to play where he wasn't the absolute biggest guy on the court, where he needed to finish underneath the basket. And he got so much better at that as the season went along. He's got a really good jumper and or really a set shot for him. But he finds the honey spots in the zone. He finds the soft spots. This is a guy that it's go. This is why I say it's going to be really hard to play zone defense against Colorado next year. It's because of Evan Batty and Deshaun Schwartz. Those are the two guys that changes everything for Colorado's offense. And Batty's development and continued development as a playmaker, playmaker is going to take away some of the need for McKinley Wright to handle the ball consistently, which has provided some turnovers. It's going to take a lot of pressure off McKinley Wright. And it's crazy to say this, but this is all going to be coming off the bench next year because Dallas Walton's the starting center and Tyler Bay's your starting four. So Evan Batty's going to struggle to find a way to get minutes, I think, at the start of the year in a way. Like, I mean, he'll probably be playing 22 minutes a game at the start of the year, but this is a guy you're going to want on the four for 25 to 28 minutes a night and the Buffs are going to have to do some creative things with their lineups and baddies. Again, it's going to be Batty, Bay, and Seaworth that are going to have to make the biggest adjustments there. And Deshaun Schwartz can easily play the two, too, so that's not that big of an issue when Shane Gatlin goes to the one or when McKinley Wright is in there and Gatlin goes out. But uh, Batty needs to work on some of that perimeter defense stuff because he's going to be playing a little bit more on the perimeter and he needs to get a little bit quicker. He's really quick for his size, but he needs to get even a little bit quicker. And uh, I don't really know how you work on your athleticism, but I would like to see him work on his athleticism because I think there's some untapped athleticism because he's one of those guys. When you look at the NBA team here in town, Nikola Jokic, he's got a really weird amount of athleticism. Like he has great hand-eye coordination. Of course, he doesn't have the explosive dunking ability, but he's quick and he does all these certain things like that. I think Batty can break into that category of having some untapped athleticism just in terms of, you know, lateral quickness and hand-eye coordination and stuff like that that moves his game up another level. And again, when you look at McKinley Wright as a four-year guy, Batty's going to be a four-year guy. And he already had that red shirt year, so he is going to be, you know, a 24-year-old, 23-year-old, fifth-year senior, and he's going to have an unbelievable career here at the University of Colorado. Do you think it's a situation where he 
improves more this offseason than he does next offseason, but it's really that junior season when people realize it? Just because of the the logjam you talked about? Yes, because of the role and usage around Batty, I think you're probably going to wait and see. It's going to be hard to see where he's improved next year. I think people like me and you are going to be able to see his improvement, but in terms of the average fan, the numbers aren't going to explode off the page from year to year. Dalen Kuntz showed some flashes of potential, especially later in the season, scored a total of 200 points as a true freshman. Another grade I'm kind of curious what you gave here. Dalen Kuntz, I gave a C plus, uh, and this wasn't based on expectation. This is what I was talking about. One of the guys that I just gave a grade based on overall contributions. I was really pleased with Dalen Kuntz. I think he was a really good point, solid backup point guard at times. And uh, in terms of learning under McKinley Wright and maybe developing into a shooting guard a little bit when McKinley Wright's a senior and Shane Gatling's gone, uh, I see very high ceiling for Dalen Kuntz. Uh, he has a very, very good ability to drive left, like already at the college level. He's an elite left-handed finisher for his size. He cannot go right at all. Like that's going to be on the scouting report starting, you know, first game next year because uh, essentially, you know, he got a little bit more usage there with Parquet out, and he only drove left. He would take the ball, drive left, and he would finish, and it worked almost every time. He needs to work on his shooting a little bit, and again, he's a guy that needs to pick up his defensive ability, and that's something that a lot of people make in their improvements from freshman to sophomore year in college. But yeah, I, I'm pleased with him, and when I say Tad Boyle hit on two recruiting classes in a row, Dalen Kuntz is the guy I look at and going, all right, all right, I see it here. I mean, it's not completely there yet, but I see what Tad Boyle saw, and I see why I could say already he probably hit on this recruiting class as well. Is the single most promising thing with him just that he's not scared by a big stage? Clearly, uh, you know, that uh, Pac-12 tournament game where he had back-to-back steals, a lot of freshmen would have kind of been intimidated in that type of environment. Yeah, it's not the same as a ski booker. I don't know how to describe it, but he gives zero Fs. I mean, he just <laughs> he just he just plays. Uh, and it wasn't the ski booker like he literally cares zero Fs about everything that's going around around him. It's Dalen Coons cares, but once once he gets in between the lines, it's yeah, I'm, I'm gonna play my game, and I'm not gonna have a problem with whatever or whoever I'm playing against. And you know, when you have very cerebral players like Evan Batty and McKinley Wright, and I've talked to pitchers about this in the major league level sometimes being smart hurts you as a player and i'm not saying dalen Kuntz is dumb but i'm saying dalen Kuntz is the ability to turn it off and just go i'm playing my game sometimes when you're super smart like evan batty when you go against a guy like deandre ayton or something like that you're like oh i'm playing against a guy that's going to be the first round pick in the nba draft uh i need to do this this and this differently and then you forget to play your game Dallas Walton showed he has the ability to do Dallas is a very smart guy. Dallas has, has the ability to do, all right, I can turn it off and I'm just going to go straight at this guy. Ben Mills did it too. Never, <laughs> never forget. Alexander Strotting, not much from a number standpoint, but a couple really big stretches for the buffs late in the season. You got a grade on a curve here, right, Jake? I, 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 I've, this is a different category. He got the highest grade on the team. He got an A plus. <laughs> Dude, awesome. I love this kid. Um, I mean, he, he he might not play at all next year. Like, he does not fit at all into the rotation, but I don't know how you don't put him into the rotation. Like, Tad Boyle's going to get frustrated at some point, like into the Norfolk State game or whatever, two games into the year or, or 
the Nichols Colonels or whoever they're playing. Uh, that still rolls off the tongue. The Nichols Colonels. Uh, he'll get frustrated, you know, f- 10 minutes into that game when the Buffs decided not to show up because it's Thanksgiving week and, you know, they had homework and whatever. And all of a sudden it's a lineup of just Alexander Strading and like four other guys that you don't really know. And Strading's out there with four rebounds and four points in like two minutes. And Ted Boyle's like, that's what I need. I need the hustle. See, Strading provided it. And then all everyone else is fine. Uh, so he's really good at making validating Tad Boyle's like whole philosophy because he listens to Tad Boyle and just goes out there and does it. And I, and I love him because he does not hurt you. Like it's very easy as like a six seven white guy who's lanky and like doesn't look athletic at all to go out there and be like, all right, uh, I have to go do this, this, and this, and uh, try and you know dunk over people and hit three point shots. Instead, he's just like, I'm going to make the correct pass. I'm going to sit at the high post. I'm going to make the good cuts, and I'm going to play defense. And I'm going to go all hustle for the five minutes of action I'm in here. And that's a really nice thing is when you know you're only going to play for five-minute stretches, and this is like having a short shift in hockey, you can just go all hustle, and you can just beat guys to the ball because you don't have to preserve energy at all. And this guy found an ability to play in spurts like that and be really effective in spurts, which is not easy to do with no rhythm. So, uh, again, this is a guy that does not hurt you when he is on the basketball court. And even McKinley Wright, the Buffs' best player in terms of overall ability, hurts you at times. Straighting never, ever hurts you when he's on the court. And that is something that is really nice to have. Uh, And, you know... I would never see him playing down the stretch, but if I have a guy like that that's on my team and there's two minutes left on the clock and we're up four and we have the ball, I'd put him into the game because you know there's not going to be a turnover. There's been a few guys during the Tad Boyle era that have just been a complete waste of a scholarship. Eli Stalzer, Kenan Guzinich before he left. Credit to Alexander Strade. He's officially off that list now. I mean, that's for a second there – he was kind of a, why is he on this team? And he's obviously proven Tad Boyle right here. You know, he even asked himself that question a couple of times. And how could you not when you're not playing at all? Uh, but, yeah, I mean, if you would have asked me maybe ten, you know, five games into this year, I would have told you, I'm like, I don't know what he's doing on the team. And he proved that he's worthy of that. And anyone who said that was completely wrong, myself included. Eli Parquet missed 10 games due to injury and struggled often when he was actually getting playing time there. Do you have faith that he's going to turn into a player? Yeah. Uh, I I like a lot of the things Parquet does as a player. I mean, 6'3", 190-pound guard. He he, he is the body type, and I think he's got a solid stroke. Uh, I think he has a lot of hustle when he's on the floor, but he was never really under control. And, you know... Going in towards next year, depending on what the Buffs use with the scholarship, which could end up being a, a fifth-year transfer wing or guard, I wouldn't be shocked if to see Parquet redshirt as a you know his, his second year, uh, kind of the w- way George King did a few years ago. Another guy who wore twenty-four. Uh, clearly, it's going to take a little bit longer with Parquet and his development, which uh, I think he's from. A, I don't know if Beaumont's big. Is Beaumont big? 
I don't know his area. I think I think he's from a smaller town in Texas. I, I don't think he played at the highest level. I, I'm not sure though. I'm, I might be speaking out of my butt yeah. here. And he dealt with injuries in high school as well, which was kind of uh, right. Why he didn't get as much exposure? Yeah, he just he just clearly isn't there. Uh, but I mean, I I could see the potential. I see what Tad Boyle sees. I just I, it's too early. I give him a C just because I I have no idea. I can't give I can't give him a high grade or a low grade. Uh, just because one, the injuries two, his usage was so small for the buffs. And when he was out there, he sometimes looked like he could do some stuff. And then sometimes it looked like he struggled. It looked like a freshman year to me. It, it didn't look like anything other than a guy being a freshman and not having that much experience. Name and right. The buffs lone senior played in 14 games before shutting it down with surgery. He could have played through this, correct? But was he trying to get rehabbed for his professional career is that why he decided to shut it down uh i don't want to confirm that but uh some of the stuff i was hearing would indicate uh something along those lines uh i know that he didn't have a broken foot he didn't have the x-rays came back as clean so he was in a lot of pain he said which I mean, that's up to every single person. Well, it's a tricky thing to criticize someone when you're not in their shoes. Right, literally, because it was a foot injury. <laughs> um, but so it's it's impossible to say because you, you don't know how much pain he was in. Or in, And again, it's not like McKinley. You know, McKinley was every time he stretched his shoulder out, which, you know, he's not doing every minute of his life. Naaman Wright's walking on his foot every minute of his life. You know, that who knows how much pain he was in, but he did not have a foot fracture. And that's what they actually reported it as. Okay. So uh, a lot of people, I think, around the program thought he could have played through it. And that's where some of that narrative came across. But, uh, yeah, I, I'd give him a D. I mean, I just I don't think he did enough from a, a senior standpoint in terms of, like, putting the program in a correct place. Or, uh, you know, when he was on the court and healthy, he was – he was a non-factor. Like he, he, he lost his job in the starting lineup before he even got hurt. Like he just, he had such a disappointing year, and that's what D stands for, disappointing. Uh, from from a whole standpoint, and so uh, it was a shame to see because I thought going into this year that he could be a really good wing for Colorado, uh, and he could step in to do a lot of the things George King did the year prior, and he did zero of those things even before he got hurt. So. Uh, Injury, yeah, injuries aside, I just it wasn't a good year for Naaman. When he transferred here, I remember reaching out to a couple folks that cover Missouri, and they said he's got the talent. It just never came together, and it's kind of the same story at CU. You could see he had so much more potential than what he actually put out there. Uh, and I don't think he's a bad guy, no. But he's not a great leader either. So he which was, is fine. You're you're yeah. allowed to not be a leader as a player. I mean, there are plenty of people that have succeeded i mean uh look at the the buffs championship teams like rashawn salam wasn't like necessarily a leader if you go back in time uh and he was obviously a great player uh but i i think Naaman wright the verdict on him that i'll always have is i saw him practice a lot during his redshirt year he was really really good in practice and i never saw that guy in the games, I saw it for like really small flashes and maybe one game at a time over a 20 game sample, but he was never that guy in two years at CU. And I think Tad Boyle eventually just got frustrated with him, you know, early on in the season and stopped starting him and wanted more from him. And then he had an injury and, you know, he, he both had reason 
pain and an excuse to be like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. And that's his decision to make. I still put his career above Josh Fortunes, though. And Josh Fortune was another guy you talked about looking good while he was sitting out during that transfer year. We were thinking this guy is going to be one of their top two players, and we all know how that turned out. The Konigsberg hype train lied to us one time that was with <laughs> Josh Fortune. But we were all right about Derek White. Yes, we were all right. That was, you know, I'll not, and this is a story, and I've told this a lot of times, but who knows who listens to this podcast if, if they're different. Going into the Utah game in 2015, 2016, uh, Josh Scott's senior year, uh, they had Jakob Pertl. Jakob Pertl, if you remember in college, was mm-hmm. a beast. Yeah. Like, a be- like he was just as good if jo- as Josh Scott, if not better. And Derek White was scout team Jakob Pertl in practice. <laughs> and Josh was, a, you know, Josh was a senior. He was a really good defender and a really good post player. Derek White absolutely just made a mess and a mockery of Josh Scott in practice playing scout team Jakob Pertl. And I just go, oh, my God. Like, I'm like, oh, my God, this dude is going to the NBA. Like, this is the best. Like, this is the best basketball player I've seen since Spencer. And obviously, he was the best basketball player any of us had seen since Spencer. And if it wasn't for Derek White, the thought of them bringing in a transfer would have everybody cringing because their batting average with transfers is... Not very good. It's below the Mendoza line. <laughs> uh, but there are some names that I've seen that the Buffs have looked at, and I think the Buffs are still in a holding pattern, quite honestly, to see what goes on around them because they got McKinley right at a time like this a few years ago. There are some guys that open up based on you know coaches that change jobs and stuff like that. So I wouldn't be surprised to see the Buffs go out and get a four-star that could help the team next year. I also wouldn't be surprised to get them see see them get a five-star, not a five-star, but a, a grad transfer, fifth-year senior. That was the five I was looking for. That could impact the team right away. I think they're looking more at wings and potential two guards than anything else because they know McKinley's going to be here all four years. And I think they're confident with Dalen Koontz being a backup point guard and Shane Gatling being able, being able to play that role for the next few years. And they obviously don't need a big man anytime soon. But the consensus is they will not do what they've done in the past, which is give the token scholarship to anyone. If, that scho- if they can't find a way to do something with that scholarship, they might be sitting on it till December and do one of those things where they bring in somebody midway through the year. Next up, DeLeon Brown only played in nine games before becoming academically ineligible. Tad Boyle did not hide his frustration with this situation. It seems kind of cruel to give Delion Brown a grade. Incomplete, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's incomplete. I can't. I mean, I don't want to give him another F because, yeah. He, well, he failed on his teammates. He did, uh, but you know, uh, Delion is one of my favorite players on the team. He's he, he's a really nice guy. Um, unfortunately, he had some problems with his grades uh, and. He's going to feel the pressure, if he hadn't already, from Tad Boyle to get that bleep corrected. Uh, and if you don't, you I mean, my mom always says this, ship up or shape out. Or shape up or ship out. I, this is very hard for a dyslexic person. but <laughs> So you understand why I've had some struggles around my path because I couldn't even figure out what my mom was telling me. But, <laughs> but Delion Brown needs to follow that motto and uh, – Tad Boyle's a guy that's not scared to force a guy out if he doesn't fit the program. And 
Delian Brown proved this year that he's struggling to find the barometer, the, the, the baseline to fit Tad Boyle's program. And from conversations with I've had with Delian very recently, he wants to stay here. He wants to find a way to be able to be a part of this team. And that's good. Like, you want that to happen. Like, he's going through some adversity. He's gone through some adversity, very public adversity. Like, I failed a bunch of classes in college. No one cares because I wasn't a college athlete. And Delion fails a couple classes in college. Very normal thing. I think a lot of us failed classes in college, but everyone hears about it. It's public information. And that will follow him for the rest of his life if you Google Delion Brown. Like, that's it's unfortunate that that's a thing, but but that's the case. And he needs to find a way to say, all right, I battled through this adversity, and if I really want to stay at Colorado, I have the ability to, but it's not. it's got to turn from a want to a need. And if Delion Brown does that, all of a sudden the Buffs have what two years ago was their best perimeter defender back at the 2-3 guard position, and he is a valuable piece to the rotation. He'd be more valuable to the rotation than anyone else they could get right away um, because, again, they have an open scholarship right now, and they don't even know if they're going to use it because that's how locked in the buffs are for next year. So Delian Brown would be the best option they could possibly use with that scholarship. It's not like a guy like Kenan Gusinich or you know what we thought straighting was turning into. It's This guy can still help the team, but he needs to get some stuff corrected that doesn't have to do with basketball. I actually got in a debate with another media member who thought that Tad Bowles should just kind of cut bait there, even if he got better in the classroom. And I thought that was a horrible argument. To your point there, you need a glue-type guy off the bench, high IQ, you know, ironically, because he's struggling in the classroom. The guy knows where to be on the basketball court. Right. And that's exactly what you want as you kind of round out your depth for next season. And it seems so arbitrary that we actually care about what they do in class, because I don't think any of us actually care what they do in class. They're here to play basketball. Like, come on. <laughs> it's, it's so stupid. The whole I'm not going to get to the college athlete thing, but yeah. None of the walk-ons scored during the season. One of the, the sadder points of the, the 2018-19 season. Uh, those three guys only played a total of 23 minutes. Yep, Ryder, McQuaid, Ursak, Mark, Marnica, whatever. Well, I don't know. One of them was Redshirt. You know, I couldn't even tell them apart this year, quite honestly. <laughs> you, know, um, you, don't, you don't have that Bo Gamble, that one walk-on, the Ben Mills that you're just, you want to see them play basketball more than anything. Ben wasn't sport. a walk-on. That's true. <laughs> but uh yeah. But you know what I mean, that that guy on the bench that We even had it with uh with Repine a few years ago cuz cuz three Yes, yes, uh, yes. You could easily change his name to something like Threes, but uh you know, I, I'm careful with what I say about walk-ons cuz they're truly the heart of the program. Like they I mean McKinley writes the rare case of someone that actually cares about their athletic department that goes to school where they do. Like I can pretty comfortable in saying that like he actually cares about CU and most guys actually don't um they care about you know just going to the next level essentially using it as a gateway but uh the walk-ons care immensely about the program and uh I don't know these guys as well as I've known some of the guys in the past whether that's Fortune or Bo Gamble I talk to Bo Gamble almost every single day still and just you can't forget he's the only guy in CU Buffs basketball history to hit a buzzer beater in, in in a tournament game so he'll always have that I mean, hopefully he won't always have to have that, but he'll always have that. He, uh, he showed up to the last NIT game. I don't know if you saw, if anyone saw this. He was sitting courtside in a tie-dyed CU signed Bill Walton shirt. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, because it's Bo, and I love him, and he's the best. 
So let, let's talk briefly. I got to run here pretty soon, but just your overall expectations for next season. If they don't make an NCAA tournament, the fire tad, you know, crowd, they're going to be loud again. They're already loud. Are they really, though, right now? I think that that dissipated in the last couple months. Well, the fact that they had a good second half and finished strong only f- fueled the fire longer. Like, why didn't they play this good in the first half? If Dad was a better coach, they would have never had struggles in the first half, is the argument I heard from people. So I, I didn't see that one. That's, uh, that's pretty bad. Yeah. We, over t- Tad Boyle's tenure, would you say, I would say about two-thirds of his team showed substantial improvement throughout the season. Yes, uh, and this is the team that showed maybe the most amount of improvement, eh, maybe besides his his, early, his first or two, second year. But again, I'm very high on Tad Boyle, and uh, if they had not made the NIT this year, if they had continued to go down the path they were going down, I would have said this. If they did not make the tournament next year, I would be open to having the conversation for the first time. Now that they had the finish that they did, even if they don't make the tournament next year, the only way they don't make the tournament next year is something catastrophic happens. Like, I'm telling you, like, they're, they're going to the tournament next year unless they lose their starting center, small forward, and uh, their rotation shooting guard. Oh, wait, they did that this past year. Like, that's, again, we're having this conversation. People forgot that they lost three of their eight rotation players this year, and they still figured out a way to go to the NIT and be successful in the NIT. That is a major accomplishment. Um, But they have enough depth to cover up one injury, as long as the injury isn't to McKinley Wright. What if Tyler Bay goes pro? They can still make the tournament but they're not going to go far in the tournament. If Tyler Bay stays, if the Buffs have the team that they have for next year, and this is the clip that gets posted on Twitter in 140 seconds where you're like, oh, my God, Jake was really high in this team. If the Buffs have everybody that they have right now for next year and they bring in a contributor, not even amazing contributor, but just a contributor with that scholarship, this is a Sweet 16 team. Like That's not only the high end, that is where my, my expectation is, and that is the expectation around the program, that this is the best position team to go and make some noise in the tournament. Can we expect Dallas Walton to be what he was before this latest injury, though? That is the best question that anyone has, and I don't know if you can answer it. I know he is starting to get back into normal, regular, everyday activities, but when you have several serious knee injuries, who knows if you can ever return? He's returned a couple times from them and looked really good last year. I think the fact is he just has to find a way to not push it too much this summer. And that sucks because you want him to develop as much as he can, but you just need that guy healthy. You need that body because he is such a valuable contributor. The Buffs don't actually need him so badly because they'll have Jacob Dumback, they'll have three developed big men next year, but they need him because he is such a valuable guy. He is the starting center for this team, and he offers a lot of versatility if they are out there. So I think I look at Dallas and I see, you know, I said Deshaun Schwartz is the X factor, but Dallas is the key, really. I mean, Dallas is the key. Dallas needs to be healthy for next year to go well. McKinley Wright needs to be healthy and, you know, uh, Tyler Bay needs to stay. 
those are the few things. But again, this is a team not only that I expect to make the tournament, but that I'd expect to, and, and it's so hard to predict because you can get screwed on matchups like the Buffs did with Pitt that one year. But depending on how the season goes, I could see them totally winning not one or two postseason games uh, in the NCAA tournament. But this is them having to take care of business in the Pac-12 and looking at the conference right now. Everyone's going, Arizona's recruiting class, Arizona's recruiting class. Eh, Sean Miller's such a good coach. We'll see him 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 do that well with that one. And Bobby Hurley, oh, yeah, the great coaches there across the Pac-12. This is the best position team Tad Boyle has to win the Pac-12. Like, when you look at the preseason media poll, they'll probably be picked to finish third or fourth because every year it's going to be Arizona, UCLA, whatever. But realistically, you'll talk to the people that really know basketball around the conference and aren't just there covering football and have a basketball vote. They're going to see this Colorado team, and they're going to see a team like Washington last year, this past year, that returns basically everyone. Their system is sound. They have a coach that knows what they're doing, and they have a lot of talent. Like, this is a team that can do very, very good things. This might be the best teams Colorado Athletics has had uh, from a football or basketball standpoint since 2001. So last offseason, Tad Boyle calls every other major conference program. None of them will schedule a home-and-home. If he picks up the phone this offseason, same answer from those schools. He's just going to have to suck it up, right? You can't have this non-conference schedule again. And I, Tad Boyle, I mean, I, I credit him for wanting to stand up and say, well, we're not going to get screwed with the scheduling. But when you have a team like he has coming back, you've got to put put together a resume. It does – more for you to go lose in Lawrence, Kansas than it does at home to beat UIC. Like, just because of strength of schedule. The losses and wins don't actually matter. It's the weirdest thing. If you lose to a quad and one team, it doesn't really matter. But you need the quality of opponent, and the Buffs already have that. They have two non-conference tournaments, I believe, next year. One non-conference tournament, and then one non-conference, like, you know, neutral site thing that they've got going on. And the opponents they've got for that are way better than they had in Hawaii this past year. So that's already a good start. But, I, I mean, I'm, I'm all for Tad standing up to the man and going, you know, we're, not, we're the big boys, too. He's worried about setting a precedent, basically, right? Right, but... You look at how bad the Pac-12 is, and people are going to look and laugh. And the other thing is, Tad and the Buffs have beaten basically everyone that's come into Boulder. If you can find a way to do a three for three and two, or something like that, or two for one, where you get you know this year at home or something like that, just because you want this year to be your major year, I would do it at this point. But uh, I, I don't fault Tad for sticking hard on his one and one because of that precedent. So. You know, it sucks that you're going to have a bunch of games against Air Force and, and DU and Colorado State, who's terrible at everything they do. Uh, but uh, that's just the fact. And as long as they're not scheduling Wyoming, quite honestly, I'm fine with whoever they schedule at the end of the day, as long as they take care of their business. But the main thing isn't the buff schedule. It's the Pac-12 needs to be better. Like the buffs can schedule whoever the hell they want. But if the Pac-12 is as bad as it was this last year, the buffs can't do anything about that. So uh, Tad needs to hope that UCLA actually hires somebody that knows how to coach basketball, uh, that Cal's Rick Fox, I guess, is a thing that can win more than four games in a year. Uh, Mike Hopkins continues his success. 
Uh, Bobby Hurley continues to generate a lot of hype, but actually be terrible at coaching basketball, which <laughs> is the perfect situation because it makes Arizona State look good for every time CU beats them. And that Arizona gets a really high rating uh, next to their name because, uh, you know, they'll have a lot of talent, but I think the, the the people are starting to figure out that Sean Miller. I, just how do you lose to Buffalo when you have a seven foot two guy that's the start? It's the number one pick in the draft. How do you lose to Buffalo? Like just give him the ball and let him go inside. <laughs> it's just amazing. But yeah, so it, it's it's pathetic to think that Tad Boyle is the second, or probably the third best coach in the conference behind Hopkins and Dana Altman. And again, that's another guy that that needs a lot of praise, Dana Altman. And uh, I, it hurts me to praise him knowing a lot of the things I do and how Tad Boyle feels about him. But I mean, that's been the standard for the conference now for the last five to six years, both in basketball and I guess over the last decade football. You did a good job going beyond the box score in writing stories this season, Jake, and hopefully people read your content. Is there one story that you liked the best out of all of them? The Batty story was really cool at the end there, uh, just because I know Evan really well. Uh, the Alexander Strading story that I wrote was really hard for me to write because I hate writing about myself, which a lot of people are like, why do you why do you say that? You're a narcissist and you know, <laughs> you only talk about yourself. But no, I, I really do struggle to write about myself and I I go out with a lot of athletes. I'm around athletes all the time and it's really hard for me to feel comfortable talking about the things I know around those athletes. And uh there were some things from like I'll just give you for instance, that night that I wrote about with trading, that was one of the worst nights of my life. Like I got dumped in Vegas that night. And that's how I ended up in that situation. Uh, but straighting made it all better. And that's why I wanted to write glowingly about it. But uh, there are some really weird things that potential NBA players and future NBA players were doing that night that I was around. Uh, and it's really hard to write about that. I mean, I've been at the Boulder Bars five feet from people that have been arrested that are on the football team and stuff like that. Like, so uh, it's, it's hard because I don't want to break the confidence of people that I know and people that I respect and want to keep professional relationships with and also stay friends with. But I, I, you know, I, I tried to frame that in a way that would just be glowing of his character, and I think I did, a, did an okay job of that. But that one was really fun. But uh, the best thing writing for you so far was that you kind of let me be myself. Uh, and so the fact that I could write a literal lead with this is my bleep, this is my bleep, McKinley Wright yelled, that was, that was, that was peak shap. Well, yeah, I didn't want to put handcuffs on you. I keep telling my editors of the Denver Post and the Associated Press, I'm, I sent them like the link star stories and I just go, can you fit, can like I start writing like this for you guys? Can I like do this? And they're like, well, we're going to figure out your voice. I'm like, I want this to be my voice. So I felt more comfortable writing basketball this year than I've ever felt writing anything. I felt like the the content I was producing and the writing I was performing was better than anything I've ever done in terms of radio or writing or video anywhere else. So I was really super proud of the way things turned out. And again, this is the culmination of me just being around the basketball program for seven years and hearing literally everything because I've been around for so long. Uh, I mean, the only people that have been around longer than this basketball program than me are Brian Hall, Tad Boyle, and a couple of the assistants. So, like, that's it at this point. So, uh, yeah, I, I was blessed to be in that situation. I was blessed that you were like, yeah, just be your, you, like you said, be yourself. And it took me, like, a couple games to realize what that meant because I was trying to be you. I'm like, oh, I got to cover this super professionally. I got to be Adam. <laughs> and I'm like, this is so not me. And then I just started showing up and ripped up denim jackets and being like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be Mark Kisla, but not Mark Kisla. <laughs> 
don't be Mark Kisla. I, I know that comes across weird on Bus Stampede because <laughs> I know what he's called on the site, but I think his. Kisler wrote something funny about the Rockies today that was just like so he trashed them uh, after four games which is like I love Mark I love Mark so much because he just does things like that and it makes everyone mad and if you read past the Mark just pissing everyone off part he's actually correct about a lot of the things he writes uh, but it, yeah he he I, I want to go about it in an avenue that makes everyone like me not although I don't really speaking care of zero of F's day. given yeah I, I i follow that path quite a lot too but yeah so how many jobs do you have nowadays uh, i have eight uh, okay so um rapids beat writer at the post is my number one uh ap sports writer for nuggets avs buffs rockies third was you fourth was uh rockies beat writer for uh rocks pile which is still going on uh, fifth is I work at the bar at half fast. So come by and say hello to me. I'm a, I'm on the night shift tonight, which is fun. Cause we just play night moves by Bob Seeger and replace moves with crew. Uh, six is I'm, uh, still work heavily with North Boulder little league. I'm an umpire there. Uh, my brother's on the board of directors. I help out a lot of volunteer, a lot of time there. I, it's a job cause I technically do make some money. Uh, seven, I coach a little baseball as well. Eight is my podcast uh because i make some money off that thanks okay. to the lovely people at the blake street tavern which i know you have to thank on this podcast as well and uh i don't know i might have another one too but <laughs> yeah like so i've i it's funny because i have like 15 th- people say like oh you're so busy like oh you're so busy and it quite sounds like that but honestly i'm 24 and i just go out drinking and and uh just play video games like everyone else well keep grinding keep having fun because you get old and you can't do it anymore. Uh, went out this last weekend and I've been in a fog for three days. So while you're still young, definitely take advantage of it. You see how bright I am today? Last night I went out with one of the players on the Nuggets. So I had a crazy night last night, right? right? Like, And I'm still fine. So I'm going to enjoy all of this the most I can. <laughs> all right, Jake. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. Spring football practices got back underway earlier this week. So look for a new podcast where we delve back into football with Tyler Ziskin in the near future. Thanks again, Jake. Let's get six wins. Let's go, baby.